Hi everyone, you are listening to the Accents podcast on WUKY. This episode is brought to you by the Kentucky Book Festival, a program of Kentucky Humanities. I'm your host, Katerina Stojkova, and with me is poet and teacher Willie Edward Taylor Carver Jr. Hello and welcome to Accents. Thank you for having me. I've been so excited about coming on. You're the author of the hugely popular poetry book, Gay Poems for Red States, published by the University Press of Kentucky. Recently, this book was named an honor book in the 2024 Stonewall Book Award, Barbara Gittings Literature Award. Congratulations. Thank you. That was, I had two images in my mind that would be sort of the height of where this book might go. And that was one of the things uh, was to get a Stonewall Award. Um, So I will probably be smiling for the next 20 years over that. And what was the other? To be on Good Morning America, which also happened. (laughs) So all your dreams came true with this book. It it is a beautiful thing to say. I now have to dream new things. Uh, But it's true uh, because I... Uh, the press looked at me like I I could see their eyes when we were having our initial sort of press uh, conversation. And they asked what, what I was sort of envisioning. And I said, oh, I really want to be on Good Morning America. <laughs> and I think they thought that maybe I thought that they had more power than they had. And I was like, trust, I'll, I'll figure it out. Um, and I talked to a lot of people in order to get that to happen. Um, and then this award just sort of came out of nowhere. I had no idea that it was happening. In the press release, I read... I quote you here. All I ever wanted was for rural, queer, and Appalachian youth to feel seen, strong, and loved. I hope this helps them feel all of this and more. What Uh a wonderful, warm thing to say. You know, uh, I think a lot of us write the things we wish we'd had access to. And I think being a teacher... It's sort of like an extended version of that. You're sort of constantly uh, assessing the situation and thinking about your students, but you're seeing them through your own lens. And I've, I've made mistakes because of that, uh, because I sort of see them and think they're experiencing what I experienced, and I don't understand yet that they have a new context. Um, but I know that what all of my Appalachian students and queer students needed is more love and to be heard more. Your book is a personal book. It reveals... Your personal experience as a gay man growing up in Appalachia and the pursuit of a life filled with beauty, pride, and acceptance. I mean, you look at the title, it's very political, (laughs) Gay Poems for Red States. And then on the title page is your name, Willie Edward Taylor Carver Jr. And in parentheses... A gay Appalachian. (laughs) Yes, just, just if somebody didn't really... You know... There's so much conversation happening right now, I think, in our country about <clears throat> what some people call identity politics. Um, and it's, it's a complicated mess. Um, so in a perfect world, and I think anyone who's in any group can really understand this to some extent, I would love to just be a neighbor. But we don't live in a perfect world, so I have to be a gay neighbor. Um, when you mark somebody in, 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 that, in that way... Um, on the one hand, you reduce them because now you're saying, okay, look at me not only as your neighbor, now I'm your queer neighbor, now I'm your gay neighbor. So I want you to put that lens on when you see me um, because we need visibility. Silence is death 
for queer people um, because there are forces that would have us not exist. So we have to exist, and we have to exist loudly to sort of counter those forces. Um, but on the other hand, I've recognized there is some sense in the people who say all of this talk about identity reduces us and puts us in groups, and we see each other in groups first. And I'll say that's a sacrifice we have to make. And so if I can do that in a way that's personal, if I can make my marking of myself as a queer Appalachian person also tell the complexity of my story, then maybe I can sort of find the wiggle room in between those two truths that lets me do something that heals both sides. Talk about the decision to include a preface. One of the earliest critiques I got, uh, and I, I say this saying I've had almost entirely positive uh, experiences in all worlds that might come across this uh, book of poems, um, but was from someone who felt the need to say something along the lines of, I lacked a, a critical poetic eye or <laughs> that somehow there was something lacking in my knowledge base about how to do poetry. And so I actually wanted to write a preface at first because I was worried about people who would pick up my book and think it wasn't good enough. And I wanted to explain my process. Kind of insurance. Kind of. Um, but then the more, as I started writing it, I was like, screw that. <laughs> screw uh, any idea that I'm supposed to write things a certain way. Because you, if I'm going to write an Appalachian book, and as I was writing it, one of the things I really thought about is, I understand that we have Appalachian poets who have been doing beautiful work for the last 300 years. But I said, the, the thing about poetry specifically is it is its own audience. Poets tend to write for poets. Um, and a lot of people are excluded. Uh, most art doesn't work like this. You know, we, we make movies for people to watch movies. We make songs for people to hear. But we write poetry for people who read poetry. And I said, what if Appalachians had developed poetry independently of sort of any poetry culture? Like, what would that look like? And I thought about what are the things that people around me do when they talk and they want to show, they want to beautify what they're doing or they want to emphasize what they're doing or they want to bring out the magic in the words. And I really tried to replicate what that looked like on paper. And so it was experimental in its form. And because it's experimental and it's Appalachian, people looked, some people, very few people, but there were people who looked at it and said, oh, ignorant of the ways of the world. <laughs> I speak fluent French, right? I'm, I'm worldly enough, I guess. That's the, the road we walk if we're trying to highlight a people who've been disenfranchised, um, that people will only see the, those aspects that are associated with the disenfranchised people and not see the beauty in it, uh, which is something that Appalachians have been fighting with for a long time. And so as I was writing the preface, then I decided, really, I think what anyone needs to understand is what compelled me to write this, um, why it felt so urgent for me to get this story out. Um, and that was because of the, the kid who was writing it. And um, I wanted him to be known to some extent. Okay, you have a sense of urgency to mm -hmm. put the book out, and yet writing a book and editing it and publishing it, you know, it's mm -hmm. not an instant thing. No, <laughs> <laughs> this was, 
Um, this was, I think, once the press received it, it was there was a year before, which is fast. Um, and we had probably four four read-throughs of editors and then me responding to editors of different forms. Um, and I think the urgency came because of these elements that are so important to the book. And those elements are Appalachia. Those elements are school. Uh, these things were such... They were sources of comfort for the kid I used to be. Um, they were beautiful things for the kid I used to be. School was the most magical place on earth. Uh, and I, I liken it to literal magic. So this ragtag group of kids would come into the room and this teacher would stand in front of us and see something that we were not yet. She saw in that group of hillbilly kids on the floor someone who's going to write a paragraph. She saw someone who knows the letter B by the end of the day, someone who's going to know algebra. And they would say words, and then we would become what they envisioned. Like, that's magic. Um, and my teachers cared for me beyond the academic. They took care of us. School was in a place where there was a lack of resources um, because of the way our society is structured. When there wasn't food at home, school had food. When we did, my, one of my teachers gave me a pair of shoes once um, because the shoes I had were literally taped together. And she knew how to do it. She knew how to downplay it and say, I bought these for my son, but they're the wrong size. And we tried to take them back. And I don't know what to do. Could you please take these for me and find someone? She knew how to talk to us. Um, so I was chosen to be the teacher of the year in the state. And I was watching schools allow the poorest kids to be attacked. I was allow, I was watching schools erase black history. I was watching my personal school allow um, LGBTQ students to be harassed by community members. And it, was a, it, it would not intervene in their lives. That was the compulsion. When and how did you know that you want to be a teacher? Oh, um, there was never a moment when I didn't want to be. Um, as a joke in first grade, my mom used to call me professor. <laughs> and the funny thing is, um, I moved to France uh, in 2007 with a friend of mine. We actually lived in different towns and we were teaching in different schools. But I would visit him and his landlady, who was this 90-year-old um, French woman with a very strong regional accent uh, in Picardy used to, uh, she would treat him as if he knew nothing. She would explain to him how to turn water on or how to plug. And then when she would see me, she would, she literally called me the professor and, would, <laughs> and he hated me for it. He was like, why, why does she see you as, um, but it was because I would come in and talk about school and it's all I've ever done. It's what I did as a kid. Um, if I thought if I can be a part of something magical, I mean, for me, being a teacher was like the kid who dreams of going to Hogwarts someday. Like I got to do it. Um, and then once I was doing it, I got to feel that it's real. It really is, um, possible to transfer that faith. And I say faith in all the meanings of the word. I looked at those students and said, I'm not going to see you as someone who's going to be here in French class for two years and then walk away. And maybe you'll remember something, but as long as I'm here, I'll get paid. I'm going to believe that you're going to be fluent in a second language and that you're going to be world travelers. And I'm going to transmit that belief. Um, and I was able to do it. 
What were you doing when you found out that you were Teacher of the Year for 2022? So, um, one, a psychic in New Orleans, a week before uh, I got my first email. I'd never seen a, a psychic or anything like that, but I thought, huh, I'm here. I'll have fun. Um, why not? So I go see this uh, guy, and he was really nice, but he said, let's talk about your profession. And I thought, I've been a teacher. You're for a professor, My right? profession. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, he said, oh. and I said, well, I don't think anything there is going to change. And he goes, oh, but it will. Um, and I said, listen, I've been a teacher for 17 years. I'll probably die being a teacher. I'm happily tenured. And he goes, no, hmm, this is strange. You're going to be a teacher, but you're not going to be a teacher. And like in a really big way. And I'm like, what does that mean? And he goes, I don't know. I, I can't ask follow-up questions. He said, I'm just telling you, you're going to be something much, much bigger than a teacher, but you're going to be a teacher. And I thought, well, that's a strange thing to say. Um, and then I got the email and everything's sponsored now. So it was like, you are selected as a Valvoline winner. of, And I deleted it and thought it was spam. <laughs> I kept getting these emails and I kept deleting them. And so finally the school... Um, emailed me or the department of education uh, called me, sorry, and said, are you going to accept this? And I go, wait, is this real? Uh, that's how little I believed. Um, so I was completely shocked that I was even in the list. And then the story of it is honestly, I was in class. My students found out that I had been nominated and was chosen among like the top 40 or whatever at that point. And one of my queer Appalachian students goes, yeah, like they're going to let some big gay Appalachian be teacher of the year. And then all of my students laughed, and I laughed. Um, but then that night, I was lying in bed, and I kept hearing that sentence. And I thought, this kid is not talking about me. She's talking about herself. She has already developed coping mechanisms to deal with the fact that she's never going to be anything of the year because of who she is. Um, and so then I said, well, now, damn it, I have to try. <laughs> I can't just blow this off because now this is not about me anymore. Uh, so I invited the students to help me fill out the application. I asked them, like, hey, what are we doing that we can, because I thought I'm not going to win, but I can let them think I believe I'm going to win, and I can let them show off who they are to the state of Kentucky. So that's what we did with the application. We just talked about their projects and what they had done. Um, and then I kept making it into stricter and stricter categories until finally I was in the top three. And the truth is my belief was, oh, well, they've got a pretty picture of a guy in rainbow glasses. It'll look good on the papers. And then they can choose the person from Louisville who they're going to choose anyway. Because <laughs> that's how, in my mind, these things go, right? Um, awards are not for people from Eastern Kentucky. They're from people from Lexington and Louisville. And then when uh, I was in the green room and they started playing Taylor Swift, um, and I thought, oh my God, it's real. I'm going to win this. And so I knew about a minute before they called my name that it was going to be me. And the funny thing is my husband, it was all digital because of COVID. My husband was watching the live session, which was about a minute behind. And I pull off my headphones and point down and he takes his off and he hears Taylor Swift playing in the green room and he goes, you're going to win. And I go, I know. And then I put it back on and then they called me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and congratulations. Thank you. However, when one becomes visible in such a way, mm -hmm. then there is a price oh, yeah. for that. Oh, yeah. So um, the 
I had taught in my school district for however many years, over a decade, and it was not easy. Um, it's not easy for anyone to be a teacher now, let alone a woman or a gay man. Um, so I had fought many battles, and they be- they were exponentially harder. Um, the um, Within a day, there were conspiracy theories online that the governor had chosen me because I was gay. That and the, 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 the funny thing about these conspiracy theories... Damn if you do, damn if you don't, I know. you know? The funny thing is they were like, how did they choose him in September? The, the year hasn't even started and they've magically... And I'm thinking, this is the same day they've chosen this every year for 50 years. But it doesn't matter. Facts don't matter. It's America. Um, so <laughs> um, then an, an extremist right-wing group in my town um, led by mostly mothers who don't even have children in school, they have homeschool, um, started attacking me. So they first came to board meetings and accused me of being a groomer. They suggested that an out gay person was instantly suspect if they were um, a teacher, that um, they said the word pedophile as many ways as they could say it without saying the word. Um, and I did get a lawyer and my lawyer said, well, don't speak, don't respond because that's what you should do. Right. Um, so I didn't speak or respond. And then they started attacking me online. Um, uh, I'll give them this. They were creative in their hatred. They even wrote these little skits where I'm a character in the skit and an imaginary student is a character, and they would write these conversations that I'm supposedly having. All of it was completely invented. These, again, were people who weren't part of the school district, whose kids didn't go to the school district. Um, I had an LGBT, I had an LGBTQ affirming group at the school. The parents of those kids came to the group. They were big supporters. Um, it was entirely student-driven. Um, so the irony that these people are completely inventing these things Um, And people are believing it. Um, So because I was silent, I think they needed someone new to attack. So they actually started attacking my now former students um, who were also LGBTQ and open about it. Um, Those attacks got really serious. Um, One of them dropped out of school. One of them got such serious threats that the police had to get involved and tell them, you are no longer safe. You have to leave your home. Um, and all I wanted was for the district to respond. And they would not respond. They didn't talk to the students who were being affected, who were scared. They didn't. They could have even talked about what this group was. So the group that was being attacked was called Open Light. Um, the purpose of that entire group was positive systemic change. And so those students taught themselves black history Those students um, raised money for mental health awareness. Those students looked at ways that their classmates were being disenfranchised and fought to fix things. One easy example was they um, tried to change the rules so that students who were fined for not having a parking ticket or at the beginning of the school year had more time. And they explained, a lot of us have to buy school clothes and school supplies and we don't have money. Can you at least wait a month? Little things like that. And one of the things that they said was, we want to make sure that this is a space where LGBTQ people are welcome. So they actually added to the name, Open Light, an LGBTQ affirming club. It occurred to me, one, 
whether these children live or die doesn't seem to matter to anyone in charge of them. And two, my presence at this school is now putting them in physical danger. And so the safest thing to do would be for me to leave. What did it feel like? Um, horrific. The closest to sort of feeling it put into words was not in this book, actually. I was um, at a TED Talk in Washington, D.C., and Becky, I don't remember her last name, but she was the Oklahoma Teacher of the Year a few years ago, and she lived through a tornado with her students. Um, And I think, in my mind, I'm just going to this TED Talk, and I'm watching them, but she's, she's talking about how they knew the storm was coming, and then they lock the door, and then the lights go out. And then she's starting to think, okay, this is getting pretty scary. So she moves her kindergartners into the bathroom. And then she says, the wall starts shaking. And then she thinks, oh, okay, this is very serious. And so she puts her arm around all of these kindergartners. Um, and they're crying, and she says, well, we're going to go home. Because she literally thinks we're all about to die. And the walls start lifting away from the school. And she's telling this story. And I have this feeling like this is what I've been doing for a decade. I've been putting my arms around these kids and telling them that it's going to be okay when I knew it wasn't going to be. And now the walls are being lifted away from the school and I'm leaving them. Um, So I I quietly got up and walked out of the space because I didn't want to take away um, from her talk. And a friend uh, who was in my Teacher of the Year cohort walked outside with me. I think she recognized what must have been going through my head. And she said, can I say something to you? And I said, yes. And she said, even Dumbledore had to leave Hogwarts. I don't think any better words could have been said to me. Um, so that's, that's, that's what it felt like. It felt like the people who were supposed to be in charge of keeping the school together were encouraging the tornado. Um, and I took that advice, though, and I ran with it. I would be a Dumbledore outside of Hogwarts. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, this, this book was in some ways that. I was, I, I, I actually was, this, this, this entire book started in an angry email to my superintendent. I was writing it, and I felt so emotional that I wanted to write a poem. So I was like, all right, I'll write a poem. And it became the first poem in this book. Um, and I think... That poem was a res- the kid the, the the skin and muscle and bones of the kid for whom school was a safe place just reemerged, and he he wanted to do a lot of things, but I think he wanted to tell me why are you learning this lesson again? I already learned it. We already learned all of this. Why are you shocked? Why are you hurt? You should be stronger than this. Um, you know we have this image of ourselves as children, don't we? that we were weak then. Uh, But these kids, I'll compare it to an adult. Have you ever had a job you didn't like? More than once. (laughs) And a job that didn't want you there. Once they make up their mind that they don't want you there, how long do adults last? A month, two months, before they finally give up? Children are going to schools that don't want them, and they're lasting 12 years. And we're so desperate to put some kind of space between ourselves and that experience that we we don't revisit it. We don't think about it. We don't let those children sort of speak. 
and we see them as weak because the the enemy was so strong. But I learned from this kid, like, okay, you have things to teach me uh, as an adult. I'd love to hear several poems now. Sure. Uh, I'll read Someday Child. My parents um, have so many times after reading this tried to apologize. And I keep saying, what are you apologizing for? Um, there's not a moment in, I'm, even without even having to think about the book, I know there's not a moment in this book you need to apologize for because I know there's nothing in my life you need to apologize for. Um, but it's because they're good people. And they now look back 30 years later and think there was this child in pain and we didn't really know what was happening. And uh, I try to remind them we don't, none of us had language for what was happening. I'm trying to put that language into the world right now. Um, so I say that to say, Dad, you have nothing to apologize for because you did everything right. Someday, child. One time in middle school, I was watching Jerry Springer with my dad. The sharp and clean air conditioner coolness of our new double wide dried the sweat left over from our summer porch building, which laminated me in a clinging, icy buzzing. And though it was quite a rare feeling, as I sat watching evening television in a shirt still damp from work, I felt very much a man. Of course, it was a special episode. A gay man from California cried to his father as his father said, I can't accept this, through large, fanned-out hands that covered his cracking face as if he could hide well enough so that the audience could see neither of them. The awkwardness of the moment Ionize the air-conditioned atmosphere of the room and polarize the floor, pulling my head down so that I was suddenly, unknowingly staring, my bare feet backing themselves up against the wall of the couch, as if they felt they were trying to avoid some obvious, visible threat. My dad, like me, drinks coffee every day of the year, all day long. He sipped his coffee and used a long breath to push himself firmly into the hillside of his chair. You know, if I ever had a kid who felt comfortable telling me something like that, I hope they'd know it would be okay with me. Time and space were pulled from the room, and two timeless beings stood, one daring the other to choose this moment to set himself free. The clock stabbed forward, and my thoughts froze solid with the instant impact. Well, if you ever have a kid like that, I hope they do. Hmm. They don't remember those things. I guess that's human nature. They remember, My parents remember only the things they think were failures on their part, failures of action or failures of inaction. Um, and those are the things that they remember are blips on the radar for me, um, if, if they're even anything. And the things that I remember like that, um, like the invitation, uh, they don't seem to remember. Did you say I'm sorry, Chris? I or a guy named Casey? A, ca a guy named Casey. Yes, so a guy named Casey. Um, so this person, um, this was a very real story. Um, I had this entire interaction with and it was after the publication of the poem 
that a mutual friend said, I hope you're um, not upset, but I uh, just was talking to, and I've changed his name, but I was just talking to Casey about this, and he had no idea he was Casey. Um, Is it okay if I connect you two? And I said, yes. And so um, we said hello, and I said, if it's okay, I can just share the poem with you. So I share it, um, and five minutes go by, and there's no response. And I think, oh, I've upset him somehow. And so I'm like, I'm really sorry if that upset you. And he goes, no, I'm sorry, I've been crying, and I can't see to type you a response. Um, But he now has a show on Hulu and is a... Um, I don't want to get the word wrong, a form of psychic uh, who travels around with other queer people uh, from the South, and they basically try to help people process uh, whatever energetic things in their lives are causing them harm. His name is Kenny in real life. So um, he's not the same psychic who told you that you're going to teach No, (laughs) completely different psychic, actually. Maybe, um, maybe he's got some words for you for you know for your writing and the next yeah, book. Listen, I uh, we could talk about that one too. But this uh, the psychic, I had a crazy dream. I'll, I'll, I'll just so that I don't go off for twenty hours about it. A dream. I wasn't even human in the dream. I wasn't anything earthly. It was just a very intense, strange dream, and I woke up crying because the emotions of this surreal visual dream were so great and that's not a normal thing for me Um, and I had this compulsion like I need to contact that psychic again um, and talk to him about this particular dream and then I looked him up online I actually walked down St. Catherine Street uh, on Google Maps until I could find him and then I was like no you're not going to do this you're not going to be the person who reaches out uh, online to a psychic Uh, you're not going to do this the next day I get a message from one of my ex-students who says, hey, I hope this isn't weird, but... So this kid's now 21, 22, um, and a pastor. (laughs) But he said, I had the craziest dream that you came and picked me up in a car, and I said, where are we going? And you said, New Orleans. And he said, and uh, you drove and parked in front of a psychic. And I said, why are we here? And he said, and then you looked at me and said, so that you can remember this. And he goes, that was the whole dream, but it was so vivid I felt the need to tell you. And I'm like, God. (laughs) <laughs> Whatever is happening out there, uh, I need less communication from the. Well, other side. you know, uh, on the principle <laughs> of the superposition, you were prompted to contact that psychic. Yes, I was. Well, and no joke, uh, my friend Ja, um, uh, what do you want to say? A friend who was on St. Catherine Street that day happened to take a picture while being on St. Catherine Street and send it to me because it was in French on a door yeah and he was like this made me think of you yeah and did you contact the psychic i did okay all right well it would it would have been yes unnatural not yeah and the the friend who was in new orleans had no idea that uh any of this was happening in my mind funny thing he is now the teacher of the year for the state of kentucky um (laughs) so this one's called a guy named casey who i had never met when i was in high school i had a friend who had already graduated and she and her mother used to talk about a guy named Casey who was gay and had moved on to live in a bigger city. And though he was gay, they only ever said nice things about him. I saw something ugly, 
scribbled in the broken handwriting of the sort of broken person who writes ugly things on bathroom walls and gas stations. And it was written about Casey, who I had never met. I scrubbed as hard as I could until his name faded away from a bathroom in a town he had fled. And I sat in my used car and cried for a guy named Casey who I had never met. 20 years later, I heard a man named Casey introduce himself. His voice held the round quicksand vowels and smoky tempo of the hills. And though we were three hours away from the blotted name in a gas station, I knew it was him. I asked if he was from that town and if he knew that long graduated friend and her mother. And Casey said yes. So I told him about how much his ghost had mattered to me. Since, though gay and a ghost, he had left an echo of being loved that gave me hope. And I told him how I erased his name from a bathroom in a gas station. He hugged me tight like we were old friends, and we both cried, even though we had never met. And he asked me if I was okay. I told him yes. Did it feel scary on any level to release this book? No. Uh, I think I've been talking a lot about this with people. Um, I feel like American society, and I don't say American to say that it's not happening elsewhere, but to say this is where I, this is what I know. I think we have divided masculinity and femininity in ways that have precluded us from finding a way to be in our feels, uh, to experience emotion, and also feel strong afterwards. So I'm like all about the Taylor Swiftification of America. I want people to acknowledge the pain. I want them to talk about it. I want them to tell people how they're truly feeling. Uh, but I think we we sort of we go that route without ever saying to people, but remember how strong you are. It's almost like it's taboo to say, you're going to push through this. You're going to be so much stronger than this. This this moment is not your end. Um, and I think if we can get to a place where we're not just acknowledging the emotions because we don't want to be part of some fake pretense, but can acknowledge them because we're not afraid of them. And a lot of the work that I've done in, I don't know, the last 20 years has been to learn to be okay with feeling an emotion. Um, yeah, well, I think it's hard to learn. One thing that I find so powerful about you as a person is this authenticity and transparency that I see in you in every situation that I've encountered you. You are the same whether you're being recorded or on the stage or being uh, behind the table or just chatting up with someone each once in a while. And I have huge respect for that. And I notice it because it's something that I personally want to be. Something I was I was about to say to you, you could be um, talking about yourself. And it, it, it is hard-earned. You're right. I remember um, moving. So I, I left Eastern Kentucky and moved to France. <laughs> and um, there was a... I had a big cohort of other people from lots of other places because we all taught English 
or, or whatever language we spoke uh, in the schools. So they brought us all together to do some trainings. And there was this goofy, straight Canadian boy named Ian. Um, and he like jokingly sat in my lap and like kissed me on the head or something. And I was shaking um, because I had no reference for that. Um, just for someone just joking and being kind. It was so different from what I, I remember things like being terrified to eat in certain situations. My mom is still a very anxious uh, move going into restaurants. Um, and I just, I said to myself, this will not be me. Um, my mom has instilled so much dignity in us. And I think part of that means not letting myself fall victim to the same pains that she's had her whole life. And that means not being afraid of being judged. And it's such a glorious place to be um, when you can step to the other side. I can recognize uh, when people are being wrong or when people are thinking ignorant things, and I can talk about those, but I'm not going to be afraid of them. I just, I don't have enough life energy uh, to care about what other people are thinking about me. I had an interaction today, actually. A group had invited me. Uh, to speak at an event. Um, and the event has, sorry for t- speaking encrypted terms, I'm trying to be polite, <laughs> but the group has a national connection. Uh, and so this person basically said, well, the national group thinks that you're off brand um, and would not be a good fit to be talking about this for political reasons. What we're not saying, and which is obvious, is you're too gay to talk about these issues um, that are otherwise liberal progressive issues. Um, think, you know, gun violence, women's safety, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then the person later said, you know, I hope you understand that the decision wasn't easy and it wasn't my decision, but it was someone else's, but even that person feels bad about it. We're all cogs in a system that we can't control. And what I didn't say, but what I thought was, no, you're perpetuating a system that you can't control. There's a big difference there. Um, Acknowledging the system is a good step, but then suggesting that somehow you don't have a choice is another one entirely. And I think a lot of us, wherever we are, we play into that system to get to be a part of it. And I want nothing to do with that in whatever the system is. We all have choice. Mm -hmm. And I guess staying within the system is in a way supporting it you know mm-hmm. we are becoming the walls yeah of the absolutely it's it's sort of like being a teacher right now like i want there to be teachers in the schools who are good decent progressive people we need them and i admire that they're there but schools hurt black brown and lgbtq students period and teachers have to be willing to acknowledge both of those things at once to say i am a teacher I care. I'm also harming kids, period. You can be doing lots of good things for kids. You can be trying to make up for the fact. But if we're not willing to face that truth, I'm harming kids. Then what we're going to do is hide it away. And when I already already talked about it earlier, right, that invisibility is death, right? If you're a teacher in a school in the state of Kentucky, you are likely um, not um, teaching LGBTQ history. You are likely... Uh, painting over uh, LGBTQ topics. You are likely pretending as if LGBTQ people don't exist outside of the classroom or in any other space because you are legally required to, right? Um, So I say be a part of the system. 
I would, if I were teaching right now, I would say, there's a lesson I would love to teach about Harvey Milk, but I can't legally teach it. I would want to acknowledge it and not be a part of the system that gains access. Cornmeal and water pancakes? Absolutely, cornmeal and water pancakes. I had no idea when I was writing this that I would be writing so much food. It's just sort of, I lead from the skin when I write, and I guess my skin likes food <laughs> and memories associated. Cornmeal and water pancakes. My older brother never seemed to notice things, unless he was pointing a gun at them. He could hit a pop can from all the way across the yard, even if the cold was making our fingertips tingle and the sun was barking into our eyes from above the hill line and cartoons were on inside the trailer. I could never make any shot, because there were four-leaf clovers and sparkling zebra rocks telling wild stories to each other at the rusty feet of the railroad tracks. Who could pay attention to a pop can or a BB gun with all that beautiful racket? My mother always paid attention to us. She told us to come in out of the cold for breakfast, but her real reason was my sister had just woke up and she didn't want her to shoot any kind of guns since she was still too little to spell three-count words. And she still looked out the window when the Easter Bunny was out hiding eggs. She was also so small that she squeaked when she said, I wish we could have pancakes. And a warmer world of imaginary pancakes rose from behind her eyes, a balm to our cold, numb faces that etched a rune into my mother's heart. Well, we ain't got pancake mix, butter, flour, eggs, or syrup, but hillbillies don't need all that stuff. Let's make them extra special this morning. The sunshine stretching through the polyester lace curtains yawned its buttery warmth across the barren kitchen and what was surely a magic spell to make us remember the moment. Mom lay only the paper cornmeal and sugar sacks from the cabinet firmly on the countertop and told us we could make pancakes with just two ingredients. Using the oldest type of enchantments, she loved the cornmeal and water with her hands until it agreed to stay together, as she spread it like a blanket across the unoiled skillet. Once, twice, thrice, the fine ground corn batter agreed against all laws of physics to softly brown and turn over in the dry heat. She boiled water from the tap, and when steam began to sing wispy charms as it escaped the water and released itself into the sunshine, she held up the bag of sugar like a foundling, and the crystal powder drizzled out in swirls of cotton sand that thickened into splashing amber sorghum under her wizardry. Plate clank, steam hum, fork clink, syrup trickle, and syrup seep. Me, my brother, and my sister devoured the cornmeal and water pancakes, the corn grain tufts wearing mud puddles of sweetness, until, bellies full, we all went back outside to play. I was scratching a make-believe city scene into the dirt when my brother broke in to get my attention. Hey, he said, kicking a rock across the pretend street and nearly hitting the invisible school I had imagined there. You ever notice that Mom never eats when we do? My older brother's walnut eyes were obscured by overgrown brown hair and steadily focused on the toe of his cracked boot, and I had never realized how much more than pop cans they could see. 
What about um, the book title? So that one um, was not my original title. Uh, something else that I didn't know was a part of my writing process, but evidently very much is, is I need a I need a cover to my book to start writing, <laughs> even if they're not going to use it. Uh, so uh, I I actually made a cover to this book um, that I had sort of envisioned um, and had a title, and that title was "The Truth Will Stand When the World's on Fire," and it was much more tongue in cheek. Um, much more just fun uh, of a cover. And I had a subtitle down below. That there was literally a superscript one and then a sub, uh, one at the bottom that said, Gay Poems for Red States. <laughs> but the uh, So the subtitle won over? Yeah. yeah. And so what I love about the way the University of Press of Kentucky did this is at no point did they have like a conversation. I think it was they thought it would be sleight of hand. I started getting all these communications about gay poems for red states, and I was like, oh, wait, uh, sorry, no, that's the subtitle. And they were like, mm, no, this is your title, Willie. Trust us. And I trusted them, and they were absolutely right. Yeah. They were absolutely right. A poet walks into a bar, and the barman says, Willie Edward Taylor Carver Jr., why the long name? <laughs> you know, um, some of these names I had to fight for, uh, so I want to keep them. Uh, so my dad is Willie Edward Carver, um, and I'm a junior because of it. But it's a really old family name. My dad's grandpa was Willie Edward Carver. His dad was Willie Edward Carver. Uh, I was in uh, Maggie Valley, North Carolina a few months ago, and my uncle was like, hey, our family was there for a couple of generations before they pushed over into the Appalachians more. Uh, you should look them up. And I'm thinking, how do I look up people we splintered off of in the 1800s? What is that? But I, I was like, well, I'll drive through and look around at the town at least. So I go into a coffee shop, and I go just out of curiosity to the guy who's making my coffee, do you know any carvers in the area? And he goes, oh, yeah, there's a guy named Willie Carver. Literally, he didn't know my name, so he didn't know that I was going to share a name with the guy in the story, but this guy uh, was an auto, me uh, auto mechanic named Willie Carver. So for that reason alone, I wanted the name. Taylor is um, my college French professor's name, actually. She was um, pivotal in convincing me that I should do more education and that I should... She convinced me to move to France and teach. She convinced me that I should try a master's degree in French. Um, and when I moved to Georgia, the state, not the country, um, I met the man who's now my husband. And he, it was love at first sight. And he actually tried to drop the class because he he was with someone when we met. And he he felt the same thing. So I convinced him to stay in the class and become my study partner. And uh, we were talking about our favorite French professors. And he was referencing someone. And I was like, that's so strange. That's such a similar story to mine. And it was the same professor. She had moved to Kentucky. And that's how she even told me about this program in, in Georgia, because she had taught there. It was meant to be. It was. Well, if and, you ask a psychic. Absolutely, it was. And there's so much more to it. He, um, my husband had a really, really traumatic coming out. Um, and p 
part of that meant that his family actually took everything away from him. His clothes, his car, just this sort of separation. Completely disowned him? Yes. Wow. And the school sent out an email to everyone of his professors, and the email said, please excuse Josh um, and the last name he had at the time um, from any missing work. So Dr. Taylor saw between the lines, knew what had happened without even being told, and went to his dorm. And when she saw him, she said, make a list of everything they took. And then she replaced all of it. Um, One of the things she tried to give him was a car because he didn't have one. And he refused to take it. And he was like, no, I'll get a job this summer and I'll figure it out. So years later, when I moved to Georgia from Kentucky, I was supposed to buy a car off my high school French teacher. And the day before I move, her husband calls me and says, actually, we've decided not to sell our car. And I think, I have no way to even get down to Georgia. How am I going to make this happen? So Dr. Taylor says, I have a car. I tried to give it to a student six years ago. Take it. So she gave me this car. I took it, moved to Georgia with it, and it ended up becoming my husband's car anyway, six years later. If something's meant for you, it's going to come to you. Nobody can take away what is yours. That's true. It's meant, yeah, you're absolutely right. So he got the car. I have one last question for you. And that is a question that I ask all my guests who teach creative writing. What is the most important thing you teach your students if you want them to remember one thing from your class or workshop? What is it? Um, I really emphasize letting your body lead the conversation. I think whatever we are doing when we're making art, we're acknowledging the limits of our selfhood. I am contained in some skin and bones and muscle. You are too. And ultimately, you will never know the experience inside of what I'm contained in. Um, So whether we're painting or writing poetry or writing a short story, our hope is that the person hearing us will feel some glimpse of what is inside of us that they didn't know before. And so I remind them that your history is in your skin, your your love is in your skin, your hate is in your skin. All those things are there. Um, and if you let yourself, if you're not afraid to let yourself feel, if you will be vulnerable enough to let yourself feel, um, letting that lead what you're writing is what matters more than anything. Um, at this point, any AI can make something and put it in a technical form and use an unusual verb. But what you bring to the table is sort of is what is contained inside of you. I don't think that unless you are willing to be vulnerable, you can actually write a poem. Mm-hmm. You're, I completely agree. And, and I think vulnerability, I have learned, it is the strongest thing you can do. And Andy Bashir said something to me once, actually. I didn't know he knew who I was. I didn't realize what a, uh, I don't know, trauma it must have been for me to be Teacher of the Year for uh, other people. Uh, Dr. Um, Jason Glass, who was the Commissioner of Education at the time, told me that there were actually some meetings about me <laughs> because uh, he said something to the effect of people were saying, what are we going to do about Willie Carver? And he said this. He said, I told them 
if you're concerned that Willie Carver is speaking publicly about racism and homophobia in our schools, rather than shutting up Willie Carver, maybe we should get rid of racism and homophobia in our schools. Um, love that, man. So this must be why uh, Andy Bashir knew who I was. But he came to Mount Sterling over some hospital getting a grant, <laughs> and I went to see him. And someone was like, uh, Governor Bashir, this is Willie Carver. And he's like, of course I know Willie. Uh, teacher of the Year, so he shakes my hand. Um, but he says, Willie, you are attempting to do something nearly impossible. And I want to acknowledge the difficulty in what you're doing and thank you for it. But he said, you're... What's happening right now is people are terrified that some some unknown entity is going to harm their kids. This is sort of how this is how the bad players are working right now. Whether we're talking about yelling about groomers or yelling about CRT or yelling about vaccines or yelling about trans people, it's all the same conversation. It's telling parents that someone's trying to harm their kids or book bans. It's all the same. And he said, "You are." saying to these people who have put on lots of armor to protect themselves to please take off their armor. And they are looking at you and you're taking yours off first so that they can see you're not a threat. Um, and who knew our governor was so poetic, but it was such a beautiful image for me to carry with me that that's sort of what I'm doing. I'm lying uh, on the ground, any weapon I have, and I'm taking off my shield and saying, I will let you see me in my most vulnerable state so that you can see I'm not a threat and hope that you do the same. Um, and people respond. I've gotten so many. I could probably make a collection of the poems people have sent me that they write after they read this of people who don't write poetry. Um, and it was something I learned as a teacher. If you meet people where they are emotionally, they will respond to you in kind. And so that was my hope, that if I wrote a, poem, a book of poetry uh, meant for anyone to pick up and enjoy, um, and I could be as vulnerable as I could, would they respond in kind? And they have been uh, so vulnerable um, in telling me their stories. So, yeah, uh, you got to be vulnerable. Oh, you get what you put out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Willie Carver, I could speak to you for two more hours, um, but let's stop here for now and talk again at some point in the future. I'll thank you so much. Thank you. I will, I'll just have to write another book just so I can come <laughs> back. <laughs> Anytime. Thank you.